0: If you'll turn with me, if you have your Bibles to Proverbs 24, we're in Proverbs 24 today as we, we're, today we're finishing up our series on grit. We've been talking about the biblical concept that I call grit, what the Bible calls endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. It comes up over and over again in scripture and it's what we need to, to stay with the body of Christ and not be people who drift away from the faith to, uh, to handle and not only handle, but rejoice even in the midst of terrible tragedy and hardship. It's what we need in order to get unstuck when we get into situations where uh, we are stuck in a, in a period of sin or dis- discouragement, depression, addiction, uh, God gives us that endurance and that steadfastness to push on, but today we're going to talk about one final aspect of it, and next week we begin a series out of the book of Joshua, and we'll get to hear some of those great stories. Now, I took a physics class in college because I was required to take two sciences. I'm not a real sciencey person myself, not a very math-oriented person either, um, so I, I was required to take two, and two of my roommates said, listen, we hear that Intro to Physics... Is really easy. It's They call it football physics, which of course, you know, they didn't say it loud enough for any of the football players to hear them say that, but uh, they said, listen, we'll, we'll all sign up for it, and we'll share notes, and we'll get through it together, and I said, okay, and then two weeks into the semester, they both dropped the class, and I couldn't afford to drop the class, so I was stuck, um, and, and y'all, I have to say, I have no idea to this day how I passed. I don't, I did pass, it's on my transcript, you can check. But I mean, every time I went into that class, I sat down and they may as well have been speaking Latin because I knew nothing about what they were talking about. Uh, they, they were saying things about mass and force and velocity and, and pi. There was a lot of pi involved. I don't know what that had to do with it. I didn't get any of the pi, but uh, I didn't get much of anything either. Um, but somehow I, I, I passed. And I say all that to say this. So this week when I, was, when I was getting ready for Proverbs 24, 30 through 34, I remembered that I'd heard a sermon from John Ortberg, one of my favorite preachers. And he said, this story is a perfect example of entropy. And entropy is a, is, a, is a concept from the world of physics. And I knew that when he said that, I thought, okay, if I'm going to use that, I'm going to have to research. I'm going to have to actually learn what this means. So any of you here who are engineers or other really, really smart people Please forgive me, because I'm going to try to talk about things I do not really understand. Literally, all I know about physics is what I'm about to share with you, and I learned it studying for this sermon. So if I say something wrong, and you're an engineer or otherwise smart person, you just can keep it to yourself, okay? If I mess up with the scriptures, please come confront me. If I mess up on physics, it's okay, all right? Nobody's going to hell because they don't know physics, all right? So... (laughs) Textbook definition, entropy is a measure of the degree of disorder in any system. The the first law of thermodynamics says that entropy always increases unless something is done to prevent it. Now, what does that mean? As I understand it, it means stuff falls apart. It means if you buy a house and it's the best, most state-of-the-art house in the world, but you never do anything to maintain that house, pretty soon that house will be a piece of junk. A place no one wants to live. Stuff falls apart. So that's what Solomon is talking about in this passage we're about to read. And I promise you're going to see pretty quickly how this applies to our lives. Solomon writes I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. So you have to picture Solomon riding in his chariot through the plains and fields of Judah. And he comes across this vineyard, this broken down disoriented, disturbed vineyard. And he stops his chariot because he sees a story there. Now Solomon has grown up in a, in a palace. I mean, he has grown up in luxury. He's never really had to work a day in his life, and yet he can see what is happening here. He can see, he can picture in his mind what happened on the day this man received his vineyard. And there are two things you need to understand. First of all, he calls him a sluggard. The word sluggard means a lazy fool. And secondly, a vineyard in those days isn't like a garden today. See, we live we live in an affluent enough uh, semi-urban, suburban culture. Some of us have enough land that we're able to grow things for fun. Grow things because we enjoy it, whether it's roses in your backyard, whether it's okra and tomatoes and, and squash and things you can give away to your neighbors, but we do it for recreation because we enjoy it but a vineyard was something precious. A vineyard was your ticket out of poverty and into a secure life because most people in that culture did not own land at all. You worked for someone else. You worked their land. Or if you had land, it was a small bit and you just sustained your family. You grew what you needed to survive. But if you had a vineyard, that meant you could You could grow grapes that would eventually become wine that you could sell. And then if you worked hard enough and your wine was good enough, then you could get ahead in life. You could provide for your family. You could set up enough security so that the next year, if there was a drought, if there was a locust plague, if there was a bad harvest, you wouldn't starve. So if you had a vineyard, it was the most precious thing you had. And so Solomon pictures in his mind the day this man inherited this vineyard from his dad or his grandfather or some other rich relative and how he thought to himself, this is it. This now I'm someone. Now I have an opportunity to make something of myself. I think I'll breed I think I'll plant this breed of grape. I, I I think I'll do these things to tend it. And then next year, if it goes well, maybe I'll hire some extra help. Maybe by this time, a couple of years from now, I'll be able to buy another piece of land, someone else's vineyard, and and maybe someday I'll be one of the great men of our community. And then what happened? You can look at that vineyard and see the walls all broken down. They're covered with weeds. Somewhere along the way, the man stopped coming and tending his vines. He must have gotten busy with something else. Maybe he got sick, but most likely he just he just lost interest and those weeds grew up and choked out those tender little vines and and the the wall started to crumble and pretty soon any kind of animal that wanted in there could get in there and people were were going through there as a shortcut to somewhere else and trampling down the plants that still survived that's entropy entropy was the result it disorder reigned chaos reigned because there was no maintenance you think about the things you and i fear as as adults, the things we fear, uh, you know, when you're little, you fear things that cartoons tell you are important. When, when I was a little kid, I thought quicksand was going to be a big problem. When I got to be an adult, right, uh, you get to be an adult and you fear other things. You you think that, okay, I need to worry. What do I do if someone kicks down my door with guns blazing and and you know kills everybody in my house? Well, that means I need to have the right kind of firearms. I need to have the right kind of alarm system. I need to have all. Okay, you know what? I would be willing to bet every dime I have that's never gonna to happen to anybody in this room. We worry about the big disasters. We don't worry about the slow deterioration. And think about this guy. He didn't experience a disaster. Nothing happened overnight. There was no tornado. There was no plague of locusts. There was no, uh, there was no people you know, invading army that came and burned his vines. It happened slowly over time. It was entropy. It was something you couldn't measure day by day. I'm sure on those occasions when he did go by and check his vineyard, he thought, well, yeah, there's weeds, but there were weeds here last time and they don't look like they've grown that much. And yeah, there's cracks in that wall, but I think there were cracks when I bought it. So things are pretty good, actually. It wouldn't take that long to get things back into shape. One of these days, I'll get back to it. And he never did. And we see this happening in real life, don't we? I'll just give you two stories. There was an athlete at my university when I was there, and and he was uh, just a fantastic athlete. He was the kind of guy on the football field just chiseled out of granite. Guys would bounce off him trying to tackle him like... Like bullets off of off a of Superman, right? I mean, it was it was amazing to watch. And then uh, about ten years ago, there was a, a reunion of that team at halftime at one of my university's games, and we were there. And so here come these guys, you know, from this great team, and we all given them the standing ovation. And they're all in their forties, so they're still in pretty good shape at that point. Uh, but they call out that guy's name. They say, and, "And welcome," and they name his name, and he steps forward, and everybody just gasp because this guy in 20 years had become so morbidly obese, he could barely move. And you look at that and you think, okay, that didn't happen overnight. That wasn't a conscious decision where he said, I think I will put on so much weight that my knees will give out. I think I will clog my arteries so that I'll die of a heart attack before I hit 50. Nobody makes that decision. Instead, it's more like a choice not to do this. It's just daily things. It's not something you can measure over a daily basis. It happens slowly over time. That's entropy. Or I think about the woman I knew uh, years ago uh, who came to me after her marriage had broken up, and it was took her by surprise. She thought they were doing well. They were one of those families that, you know, you see you get their Christmas card in the mail, and they're all dressed in the same color, and you think that's a perfect family, and then suddenly they weren't. And to her credit, she said, you know, it wasn't all his fault, even though he's the one that chose to leave, it's more like for years, we invested everything we had into making our kids happy. It was all about uh, every vacation we took, it was, well, where do you think the kids will enjoy? And every time we went out, it was, well, what will the kids eat? And uh, all our social events were, well, we've got to get to this recital and this ball game and this PTO meeting and this, and it was all about ensuring success for them, but it was never about us. And then all of a sudden there wasn't an us anymore. You see, we're hitting close to home, aren't we? And I'm sure some of you right now are thinking in your own minds, okay, there's something I need to tend to. There's someone I need to call, maybe a relative that I just don't do a good enough job of keeping in touch with and I need to call them this afternoon or, or maybe you're thinking about your finances and I need to go home and, and really set out a budget and, and live by it so I can claw my way out of this credit card debt that I'm under or maybe it's, you know, tomorrow morning, doggone it, I'm going to work and I am not stopping by Shipley's and getting breakfast. I, this is, I, I'm changing my habits and I might even try to run around the block next you know, when I get home tomorrow. And if you do any of those things or anything like it, good on you. I don't want to discourage you, but that is not what I'm talking about here. Yes, those are examples of entropy and how you can address them, but I'm talking about something even bigger. Yes, bigger than your body, bigger than your financial resources, bigger even than your relationships with people you love. I'm talking about something that impacts all of those things. I'm talking about your soul. I'm talking about the state of your soul and your relationship with God. We were made for a relationship with the God who created us. And if you are saved here today, if you are a child of God, if you're not, you're going to have a chance to address that in just a few minutes. But if you are, and I I bet most of you are, it's because there was a time in your life when you were born again. That's not just a phrase that holy rollers made up. That came from the mouth of Jesus in John chapter three, you must be born again. And it's literally true, not literally physically true, but it is literally spiritually true that when you come to know Jesus, you become a new person. There is a there is a very definite uh, junction in your life, a a transition that you can look back on and pinpoint and say, "My life was headed in this trajectory, and suddenly Jesus came in, and I became a new person, and I gained new life, and everything was different from then on." And, And so the here's here's the reason I tell you that. At some point, we experienced that new birth, and we were excited. And you can't help but get excited when you're born again. I mean, you're ready to storm hell with a water pistol. You are on fire. You are, you're willing to give any resource that wants, that needs to be donated. You're willing to volunteer for any service. I mean, heck, if God calls you to go around the world and spread the gospel, you'll go. If God calls you to, to forgive that enemy, you'll forgive, you'll love, you'll do whatever he says because of what Christ has done for you. You are excited. So what happened? What happened to most of us because we don't have that same excitement, that same joy, that same passion? What happened? I I tell you what happened to a lot of us. We fell into the trap of good enough. Oh, this is good enough. That'll do. That'll do. I, I have a brother in law who, when we're doing a job together, he'll go, eh, good enough for the girls I go with. And that's pretty funny. But I think we as Christians, we get into a state of saying, look at all the progress I've made. Look at the sinner I was. Look what I am now. That's good enough. And, and I'll tell you, for most of us, good enough means I can now fit in with my church friends. When I'm hanging out with the people at church, I don't feel like a dirty sinner because I'm pretty much as good as they are. I can say the same kinds of words. I can avoid the words they avoid. I can, I can treat people with kindness the way they do. I, I can do all that stuff. I can be a good churchy guy or gal, and therefore I'm good enough. And others of us, we know we're not good enough, and there's a there's a sense inside of us that I know I should be doing more, I know I should be growing more and changing more, but right now is just not the time for me to do that kind of work. Because, and and depending on the stage of life, the, the situation varies, but maybe it's because you're in school and I've got to get this degree finished. Or maybe it's because I've got these kids and they're so, they're so busy and they just, I mean, it's like juggling chainsaws. I don't know how to keep on top of it. Or, or maybe it's because I'm at that stage in my career where I really need to put my nose to the grindstone. And if I can just do that and hold on to it for a few months or maybe a few years, I'll get where I need to go. Or maybe it's because you're staring down the road at retirement and you know you need to get some things in order before that happens or else you're not going to be able to retire. Who knows? But there's always something. And meanwhile, your your vines are being covered with weeds and your wall is crumbling. And I'll tell you, the danger is not, please hear me, the danger is not that God's going to get mad at you and say, you're out of the family. Because Here's the thing. I don't know what you and I are going to do. We're unpredictable. But I can tell you this about God. He's going to be faithful. And he's going to hold on to you no matter what. That's the good news. The danger is that we'll go through life thinking everything's fine. Everything's good. I'm good. You're good. We're good. And then poverty sneaks up on you like a bandit. And lack and want sneak up up on you like an armed man. So you wake up one day and you realize, I am miserable. Here I am, I'm a Christian, I've been given all these good things and I'm the unhappiest person I know. What happened to that joy of the Lord I'm supposed to have? Or worse still, you wake up one day and realize that you are suddenly caught in some devastating moral compromise that drives people away from God and hurts you that you'll never forgive yourself for and you don't know how it happened except to say, I just, I just drifted into this. I didn't mean to do this, but I did it. Or you destroy some important relationship that you can never get back. You can never gain their forgiveness no matter how many times you apologize or what you do or you drive some seeking person away from faith in Christ, you become the reason they don't believe. Or you are the source of conflict within the body of Christ that splits a church and that causes pain among God's people. All of these things, you and I are capable of these things. You have to understand that. It's not it's not quote-unquote bad people who do these kinds of things. It's It's people. It's believers in Jesus who once were on fire for him, and, and that's not all the danger. It's not just the bad things we will do when entropy sets in. It's the bad. It's the good things we won't enjoy, because what's a vineyard? A vineyard is a source of wine. What was wine in the ancient world? Wine was was a, a, a means of celebration. And so God is saying, "I've got, I've got joy for you. I've got things to celebrate. All on the road ahead of you. You just have to work. You just have to pay attention." And I know, I know there are some of you who would say, listen, this is about a lazy person. I'm not a lazy person. And I believe you. I, I know many of you and, and you're, you're high achievers and you're hard workers and I admire you for that. But I know a lot of high achieving, hard working people who never do anything for their soul. And they just figure that's God's job. I'll focus on the money. I'll focus on the family. I'll focus on my body and, and, and let God take care of the soul. And that's not the way it works. I want to give you a couple of of, of passages from the New Testament that apply to this, that tell us what we should do to avoid entropy. And the first one is 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This is Paul writing, and remember, Paul is the man who wrote half the New Testament, so why does he say, I am the least of the apostles? I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Later on, in another letter, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm I'm willing to bet that if you're talking number of sins, quantity, I bet I sinned more than Paul ever did. He was a Pharisee, he was good at avoiding sin. It's not the number that Paul's talking about, it's the magnitude of the sin he committed. He's talking about the fact that I persecuted the church. He can probably, if I had to guess, Paul can never really get over the words that Jesus spoke to him when he was converted on that day, on that road to uh, to Damascus. When Jesus stood before him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. He didn't say my people. So Paul would say, "Hey, you know, you may be a sinner, you may have done some things you're ashamed of, but you didn't physically assault the son of God like I did. You didn't drag Jesus out of his home and drag him to the authority so he could be thrown into prison. You didn't violently oppose the gospel I did. And as a result, Paul is willing to say because I've been given such grace that the king of the universe would not just Pardon me, but give me a fresh start that I could be a new person, that I could have a life that matters after what I've done. I'm not going to waste that. I've been given a vineyard and it's precious and I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to outwork everybody. Not that I can brag that I'm a harder worker, but so that I can take full advantage of what Christ has given me. And then there's Philippians two twelve through 13. This is a passage that confuses a lot of people. I, I hope I've got a handle on it so I can explain it to you. Paul writes and says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, if you take verse 12 out of context, this is why people get hung up on this. It looks like Paul is saying, work so you can be saved. But we know that's not what Paul means. I mean, the very next verse, he says, for it is God who works in you. But even if you don't read that, you you can look at anything else Paul wrote or anything Jesus said. And we know that salvation is not something you earn. Paul, for one example, probably the most succinct example, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, for by grace you were saved through faith, this is not of yourself, it is the free gift of God so that no one could boast, not by works, not by works. So Paul's not saying works so you can be saved. What is he saying? We have to understand what salvation is. Because when we hear Jesus saves, we think Jesus saves sinners from hell, and he does, hallelujah. But you might be surprised, if you actually take the time to read the New Testament, you might be surprised how rarely salvation is presented in those terms. It's very rare in the New Testament to read, come to know Jesus so you can escape hell. Come to know Jesus so you can go to heaven. I mean, that's true, but most of the time it's presented more like this. You're headed down the wrong road. Come to Jesus so you can go down the right road. You are a sinner. Jesus wants to save you from your sins. Come to Jesus and get new life. We want to jump to the end of the story. Jesus is like, I'm saving you for right now. I want to see something happen. I I want to die for your sins so you can have a life that matters right now. Not waiting until the end. So uh, here's a picture of it to me. Here's, Here's a good way for me to wrap my mind around how this works. So imagine you are a homeless person and the greatest home builder in the world comes to you and says, I will build you the best house that anybody on earth has. I will build it for you for free. I will bring all the materials, all the tools, the plans, the expertise, and you won't owe me a dime. And you'll have the nicest house on earth. There's just one condition. You have to work alongside me. You have to work alongside me or you won't get to enjoy it. Every day you show up, I will teach you what to do. I know you don't know how to build. I'll teach you. I'll show you. By the time this is all over, you're going to be almost as good a home builder as I am. I'm going to teach you, but you have to show up because every day you don't show up to work. I'm going to decide, I'm going to just assume that means you're perfectly content with your cardboard box under I-45. You're perfectly content just living off whatever people throw to you as they drive past at 70 miles an hour. And and, and I'm not going to, who am I? Who am I to say that you can't live that way? It's your life. Or you can come work alongside me and you can gain something wonderful, something that will last forever, something that all of your homeless friends will look at and they'll say, well, I want that too. And then you can come introduce them to me and they can have it too. And some of you know what it's like. You, you've watched a home being built. Maybe you've helped build a house. Maybe you've seen your own house being built. And you know what a long process it is and how there's disappointing times and there's there's setbacks. I mean, my brother is an architect. He designed his own house. And uh, this has been years ago when they built it. But at one point during the building of his house, they came, the workers showed up the next day and someone had snuck in at night and stolen all the windows before they were installed. That was $10,000 worth of windows and his insurance company was like, "You know what? There's nothing in our policy that says we have to cover that." So he's out 10,000 bucks. Things like that happen. And you, you know, you hit your thumb in the hammer, hit your thumb with a hammer and then you hit that same spot and you you learn new words at that point, you know, a vocabulary comes to you that you didn't have before. So so yeah, there are setbacks and there are days when it's hard and there are days when you don't see any progress. But think about the end. Think about what's happening. Think about what you're gaining. Now think about this. Jesus died to give us this opportunity. This is not just a home builder out of the generosity of his heart. This is, I am giving my life so that you can have this chance. And then my Holy Spirit comes in and he is the power that makes you new, but you have to show up to work. God is not gonna drag you into holiness God is not going to launch you uh, involuntarily into becoming like his son. That's something you have to choose to pursue. Salvation is free, but Christ-likeness ain't cheap. So are you going to show up to work? Will it take a long time? Yeah, it's going to take your whole life. Will there be discouraging moments? Will there be times when you're going to think, you know, I thought I was done with that sin and here I am back in it again. Will there be times where you read the scriptures and you go, I don't understand anything I just read. Will there be times when you serve others and you can tell I didn't make an impact on their life at all. They, they don't, they're not even interested. Yes, yes, yes to all those things. But let me put it this way. If you, if you choose not to work on your soul, God's still going to love you. Christ's blood is still enough to save you. But man, what a waste. What a wasted opportunity. On the other hand, if you show up, if you do the hard work more days than not, if you're consistent, if you have real grit, steadfastness, endurance, think about the miracle that you're becoming. Think Think about a home that's three quarters built and everybody drives by and thinks, oh, wow, I'd like to have that. And that's you right now. If you're showing up to work alongside Jesus, you're not where you need to be. But man, what you have now is so much better than what you had before. It's not easy. There's discouragements. Some days you don't see progress. Here's something I've learned though. The days when you don't feel like showing up to work with Christ, those are the days when you have a real chance to make progress. The days when you don't want to read the Bible or you're too busy and you choose to do it anyway. The days when you you don't really have time to pray, but you make that time anyway. The days when when you just feel like a day for me, but then you hear about some opportunity to help somebody who's in need and you choose against your own nature to go and help that person. Those are the days you look back on and realize those are the days. That's the day when I really grew in Christ. Now, some of you would say, yeah, but Jeff, you don't know how many years I've wasted and how long I've been living in this kind of sinfulness and selfishness. And I can say to you, ultimately, that does not matter. Because God can build an incredible house in 80 years or in eight months. God can do it. And somebody else might say to me, yeah, but Jeff, I'm, I'm older now and, and it's too, too late for me to change. And I know that's not true. And you know how I know that it's not true? Because you're still breathing. Because when Jesus is done working on you, you'll know it because you'll be standing in his presence for your judgment. Until then, God's still working on you. God's still doing good things. But are you willing to show up and work alongside him. You've been given a tremendous gift. Let's not waste it.